I'll give you just a, a quick update here. Um, over the last uh, couple of months, we've seen a, a variety of changes in our church, and uh, one of those changes uh, has to do with a number of uh, people um, deciding to leave and be a part of other communities or take a break from church. I mean, for a variety of reasons, honestly, including um, the last two years with uh, COVID and online churches, every time we move to a new location, we've seen our community change. Um, and it was kind of interesting. Some of you joined joined with us at Camp Mary Orton, and some of you were with us back when we met at uh, uh, the church along the river, with Northwest UMC at their outdoor chapel. And you know, so every time we've moved and changed, our community's changed. But uh, one of the things we're noticing right now is that there has been a significant uh, shift in our, um, our our giving. And so as we're looking to 2023, and we're doing some budget planning, um, we're looking to potentially make some very significant changes in, in what we're able to do as a church and uh, shifting programs and hard questions around staffing and things like that. So I share that with you. I want to be transparent. I might talk about it some more as we get to the close of the year. But as you're praying about your connection to Central City Church and uh, maybe end of the year giving that you uh, you and your family think about or as you think about 2023, uh, just letting you know that we we welcome it. <laughs> and uh, we encourage you to, to, to think and, and pray about that. I have kind of like two uh, almost contradictory perspectives on, on, on church finances. Um, and, and I hold these in tension. The, the first one is we always want to do more than what we think we can do. Okay, so that's what someone would call like vision. So as we think about 2023, we're going to try to accomplish more. We're going to kind of plan on God showing up. We want to step out in faith. And we're going to try to do more in the community and more in our church than maybe what we currently are, uh, what we currently could do right now. But we hope to be able to do that you know, into next year. So we do want to step out in faith, and we've always stepped out of faith. One of the things about being a church plant is that we received, our first year was probably 80 or 90% grants. And uh, if you've ever been a part of a small organization, when your income fluctuates by $50,000 over a course of a year and your whole budget is only 200000 you know, you go for one year where you have that money and the next year you know you're not. It's like, okay, well, God's going to have to show up. Well, that's what we've always done as a church plant. We've always had to like take and trust that God will show up. So we're trusting that God will show up with that. And uh, so we step out in faith. The other thing, and this sounds very obvious, but I like obvious things. We're going to do the ministry we can afford to do. <laughs> And that's just, you know, good financial stewardship. So as we move into 2023 and we look at what our finances are, we're going to do the ministry that we can afford to do. And, and as we move into next year, there are a number of very uh, profound things that we're working on um, that I hope you'll invest in. So I just wanted to give you that update, and I'll give you some more details over the next couple of weeks, potentially, uh, so that we're all well-informed. But uh, if you are new with us, um, or if, you're, if you've recently considered this your church home and you haven't started giving, I'd encourage you to consider that. It's a, it's a profound way to enter into a discipleship relationship with, uh, you know, the Holy Spirit works on us in regards to how we give. So I encourage you to do that, but there's no pressure. Um, we're currently in a series on what it means to love your neighbor. And each week we've been talking about uh, five different categories of what it means to love your neighbor. And I'm going to jump into that. Before I do, I'm going to take a pause, as we often do. I'm going to invite you, um, as we start to think again and wrestle with what it means to love our neighbor, I want you to, to take a breath. 
I really encourage you, it might sound weird to just take a couple deep breaths. We're gonna close our eyes. We're gonna sit in silence for a second uh, and create some space for God to kind of move and show up into our lives. And then um, uh, we'll get into our sermon. So let us pray. God, as we enter this holy space, as we become more aware of your presence that is available in all places, Remind us of this simple truth that we are not God. And that is good news. You are the creator of all things and sustainer of our life and that you invite us into relationship. So remind us of your presence. In your son's name, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, amen. Here's a recap of what we've discussed. Love your neighbor in a couple different categories. First one was diversity and inclusion. And the big thing that I wanted to get across in that sermon was, um, what does it mean to love people who are different than you? What does it mean to love people who are different than you? And one of the rules that I've really sat with and tried to uh, mull over is, we, one of the ways we love people who are different than us is by giving them permission to be something I don't understand, all right? So letting people be something, and if they say this is who I am, well, just giving some space to let people be something that you don't understand. The, the following week, we talked about justice and mercy, and we spent some time in the book of Micah, and uh, uh, we looked at what Micah had to say about how money and power plays out in systems in the world to create injustice. And so our role as a church is not just to disciple one another or to gather for worship, but to actually be involved in what's happening in our city, in our country, and in, in the wider world to have engage in issues of of justice and mercy. And then the following week, we talked about compassion and community. What does it mean for us? And once again, we're kind of like, it's justice and mercy is like, how can we impact the world outside of here? Compassion and community is all about how can we love each other better? And what does it mean to be there? You know, as we talked about this, that's why we created a prayer group and a number of other initiatives where we can do a better job of connecting with one another, praying for one another, showing up in each other's lives and, uh, and having empathy to, to each other. Last week, I talked about misfits and outcasts, and I shared with you all why I like to cuss. Do you remember that sermon? If you didn't hear it, now you know it's, a, it's one to check out. Um, pricked your interest, didn't I? Yeah, if you weren't here. Uh, but we talked about what it means to love people who often live on the other side of what society deems appropriate. Right, so the society, whatever culture you're a part of, or whatever subculture you're a part of, they create boxes, and you like you have to be within that box. And anything, if you live outside of that box, then we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna think less of you, or we're gonna judge you more harshly. And uh, so we have to start recognizing these lines: the difference between what is socially appropriate and what we would consider moral or ethical are not always the same thing. Just because we consider it socially inappropriate doesn't mean that it's unethical. And there's a, there were a lot of examples, and you can look at that. But people who live on the other side of that line get labeled as misfits or outcasts. Today, I, this was not on my original list. All right? And this will be the hardest of them all. And my least favorite. And the most important. 
But I began to realize that of all of these things we've already talked about, there's one category that Jesus talks about when it talks about loving your neighbor that I'm not a fan of, but we need to talk about it. And it's loving your enemies. Oh, jeez. Now, you might, it might not be that big of a deal. Here, here's what I've realized. Many of us live our entire lives without really developing enemies. So here, here I'm going to define enemy for you. I'm not talking about people who don't like you. All right? I'm sure all of us have people who don't like you. All right? So first off, if you're like, man, I'm the only person in the world who's disliked by people, you're not. All right? We all have it. And if you don't, um, I would love to get to know you and learn what you're doing. I will adopt your practices. <laughs> Jesus had people that, that didn't like him. All right, so you know, enemies is, is a, people who don't like you, people who you have a falling out with, people who get upset with you. These are all part of life. But enemy is actually something slightly different. I've been thinking about this. Enemy, uh, the Google definition, very authoritative uh, definition here, is a person who is actively opposed or hostile to someone or something. So, so an enemy is this not just somebody who doesn't like you or somebody who you've hurt their feelings or somebody who you're at odds with. It's somebody who's actually actively trying to hurt you. That's, that's the definition for enemy. The Greek definition for enemy, based on the Greek text in various places where Jesus says love your enemy, would be similar. It's from the word hostility, to be hostile. Someone who is hostile towards you. Someone that describes a person resolved to inflict harm. Now, thinking through the people that maybe you've had falling outs with or people who you think, I don't think they like me anymore, the question we're asking today is, do you have any enemies? Which are people who are actively seeking your harm. And I'm just guessing here knowing a little bit about some of you, that we've lived most of our life avoiding enemies, maybe 50-50. I've spent most of my life, I've had plenty of people not like me, but actually people seeking my harm, not as often as you would think. Um, now, I will say that I have experienced that. And so if you're sitting there like, yeah, I can think of the people, maybe it's even a trigger for you. The question itself is a trigger because you're like, no, I actually know the people in my life who have or currently are seeking to harm me. And if that's you, I want you to hear something. I, I see you. And I know that feeling. I know what it feels like to be confused by that. Why? Why are you doing that? Why are you trying to... I know what it feels like to be angry about that. Gosh, won't, why won't they just leave me alone? I know what it feels like to feel powerless against that. Because everything you try to do just makes it worse. If you're somebody who is uh, either there is a group that's actively trying to hurt you, an individual, or even sometimes a family member, which makes it even more painful, I hear you. Today, though, we're going to talk about what it means to love our enemies. I'm also going to share with you what it means not to love our enemies, or, or what, you know, what loving our enemies isn't, so to speak. To do that, we're going to spend some time in Scripture. 
And we'll start in the Old Testament, as we often do, and we'll jump to the New Testament. So we'll start at the beginning, near the beginning anyways, in the book of Exodus. Now, I don't have any slides for you today. Um, my week didn't work out, and we don't have slides for you. But there are Bibles in your pews, and I'll give you the page number if that's helpful for you. Uh, we're going to look at Exodus, just a verse in Exodus chapter 23. It's on page 124 of the Bible in your pew. It's one verse we'll look at. Uh, Exodus is a book about God delivering God's people out of slavery and bondage. And uh, while God is doing that, he takes them into the wilderness. He's wandering around. And uh, there's a, uh, this interesting verse where God makes a promise. It's Exodus chapter 23, verse 22. And it says this, If you listen carefully to what he says and do all that I say, I will be an enemy to your enemies and will oppose those who oppose you. This is where uh, relationship with God's people starts. And uh, I want you to imagine this verse uh, like it's, uh, anyone here, like um, there's a trope in storytelling where um, somebody's right at the cusp of a battle and they give like a big battle speech or whatever. That's how I kind of read this. Like, I will be the enemy of your enemies, you know? Or like a good like mafia scene where there's like two segments of the mafia that are not going to work together, and they're like, I will be an enemy of your enemies. You know, like, I'm not a great Marlon Brando impersonation there. But, you know, like, this is, this is where their relationship starts, and this is actually in, like, a, 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 an action movie sort of way, like, profoundly loving. God says to his people, whoever hates you, I will hate. Do you know another way of saying this? And people say it all the time. People have said it to me. I'm on your side. I've got your back. And has anyone ever told you that before? It's a good feeling. There isn't a kind of love. In fact, this is what I would say. This is where we start the story. God has set apart God's people to be special and different and set apart from the world. And God says, I've got your back. This kind of language is how you love individuals. Okay? This is how you love individuals. We love individuals by taking sides, often. I've got your back. I'm on your side. I'm with you. I'll protect you. We love individuals by being more concerned with their interests. What's interesting is that God starts by loving individuals. He set apart people. But, of course, Jesus changes this dramatically. And uh, in one of Jesus' sermons, I'm going to be looking at Luke chapter 6. It's on page 1601 in your Bible in the pews, 1601. Uh, Jesus shifts this story dramatically. He says this. He says, but I tell you who hear me. This is Luke 6, verse uh, 27. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. 
God shows up to this people in the story of Exodus, and he says, I've got your back. And then God shows up amongst all of us as a God-made flesh. And Jesus teaches one of the most radical teachings in the history of the world, and every significant religious leader that's made an impact in the world, Christian or otherwise, has taught something similar, and it's that, no, don't be the enemy of your friend's enemies, but love your enemies. I was listening to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s sermon on loving your enemies. You can find it on my Facebook wall. It's about a 10-minute sermon. And as you probably know from various quotes you've seen from him over the years, uh, he, his was a, a significant part of his teaching. And it, it, it was rooted, he says, in this very foundational theological and philosophical idea that hate only causes more harm and that love is the only thing that will change the world for the better. That if I hate my enemy... I'm causing harm, he says, to both the person who's doing the hating and the person who's hated. Someone once said, uh, I don't even know who's attributed this quote, but bitterness is like drinking poison, hoping it'll hurt the other person. Hating our enemies hurts both us and our enemies. But love cures, not cures, but heals both us and our enemies. I want, to look at, I want to look briefly at this because this is, this is difficult. And, 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 and I think sometimes we're not doing it enough in the right ways, and, and at the same time we're, doing, we're expecting people to do it the wrong ways. So Jesus taught us to love our enemies, but Jesus actually gives us a very good example of what it means to love your enemy. So if I'm here, if you're sitting here and you're listening to what it means to love your enemy, you're like, oh, my days, there, you know, there are people on the other side of the aisle, politically, religiously, whatever, that I'm not going to love in the way that I feel like you're telling me to love them, I'm here to tell you that it's, it's okay. God, Jesus actually gives us a different example of what that looks like. So here's, here's the first thing that I see in Jesus' example. First off, Jesus had enemies. In John chapter 6, and in the Synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and uh, uh, at least a couple of them, I believe, Jesus goes into the temple, and he's mad about what people are doing in the temple. We won't get into the historical context of it. That's for another sermon. And what, is, what does Jesus do when he goes into the temple angry, into the temple courts? He flips the tables. Now, I'm guessing he made a few enemies that day. Here's my question for you. Did he go back and apologize? I'm, okay, I'm just asking. He, Jesus did a number of other things, and uh, he, he said, woe to the Pharisees. You can read them. And if you get into the cultural context of it, you're like, wow, Jesus, you were dropping some verse there. You know what I mean? Like, it was like, it was rough stuff he was saying. I'm guessing he made enemies there. Jesus made a number of enemies. Now, here's the first, but, but he didn't necessarily try to enter into a relationship with everyone that he had become enemies with. So the first lesson that I see in Jesus' example of what it means to love your enemies is that sometimes you will, you will have enemies that are against you for doing what is right and just, 
And you don't need to attempt or invest energy into being in a relationship with those people based on Jesus' example. All right? There are people... Now, you don't have to instigate it. You don't have to make it worse. But it's not necessarily that you need to be in a relationship with everyone who is out to get you. All right? So that's the first. If you're, in fact, the, the early church talks about how some people will hate you for doing something that's wrong, and you should probably apologize. And some people will hate you because of doing something that's right. And, you know, you need to just be able to move on. So that's the first one. Jesus even tells his disciples to, to shake off the dust when, when they encounter this kind of enemy. Here's the second example I see of Jesus loving his enemies. It becomes much more profound. Jesus' enemies ultimately get him arrested. You know the story. He's arrested. He's put on trial. He's beaten. He's paraded. And then he's hung on a cross. We, we, we hold crosses now with significance value ever since. He's hung on a cross. While Jesus is hanging on the cross, he looks at the soldiers who have done that work. And what does Jesus say? Father, I forgive you. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. On the one hand, there are people who are enemies that you don't necessarily need to pursue relationships with or try to smooth things over with. On the other hand, there are enemies that it's still good to forgive them. And here's the thing you need to understand about forgiveness. Forgiveness is as much for you as it is for them. We forgive people not only because we hope that they'll heal, but it actually helps in our healing. So Jesus is hanging on the cross, and he looks at the soldiers who are you know, just doing their job, and he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And that is profound. And here's the, here's, the, here's the great thing about it. Forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation. So you can forgive someone without any intent to be in a relationship with them. Now, this is why this is good news. And, and I'm looking at Jesus as an example because Jesus looks at these soldiers and says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. But once again, I don't see any evidence of Jesus later going back and finding those soldiers. He's like, hey, should we talk through what happened? I don't, just don't see that in, in, in Jesus' story. Did he do that? Maybe. I don't know. But, but, but he forgave them regardless of having any relationship to them and potentially any relationship in the future. And here's the beautiful thing about that is you don't have to wait for you to be ready to be in a relationship with someone to forgive them. You can forgive them right now. There might be someone that came to mind when I was introducing this topic earlier, where you could right now in the spirit of worship and grace say, I forgive you. Whether you tell them that is a decision for another day. Whether it's appropriate for you to tell them that Oftentimes, in the case of abuse, it maybe isn't appropriate. Maybe you need to keep your distance. But regardless of whether they know, regardless of whether you have plans to be in a relationship with them, you can tell them that in your heart right now. There's a third example of what I see where Jesus loves his enemies. Before Jesus is arrested and hung on the cross, he's sitting with his disciples 
and he's talking with the leader of the disciples, the, the leader who he said would be you know, leading his church on the other side of the resurrection, uh, good old Peter. And he says to Peter, he says, Peter, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter, of course, is like, ain't going to happen, Jesus. And then guess what happens? He denies Jesus three times. He, he, he disowns Jesus while Jesus is at his hardest moment. Now, that's, that's hurtful. And what you see, though, is much later, after Jesus dies and rose again, he actually meets up with Peter, and you see a beautiful picture of not just forgiveness, but reconciliation. They are able to be in a relationship together, which is great when that can happen. But, but the reason why it happened is because they were already in relationship, right? They had a history, and there were some things done that were really hurtful. Peter disowning Jesus as he's on his way to the cross would be very hurtful. And yet Jesus and Peter are able to forgive each Jesus is able to forgive Peter, and Peter is willing to make things right, and they are able to be in a relationship. And theologically, we would say that their relationship then continues through the end of Peter's life. Even though Jesus ascends and all of that, like they remain in a healthy relationship. I share all of these because I think we all find ourselves in difficult situations with, if we find ourselves in a situation where someone seeks us harm, some of those we just have to like, those are people I don't even know, and I need to just let them be themselves over there. They're mad at me for things that I did, and I don't even, you know, I don't even fully understand why they're mad. Like Jesus, or we encounter someone and we can forgive them. It doesn't mean we're necessarily going to be in a relationship with them. Or hopefully with those people we are or have a history with that we're close with, if there's the right circumstances, we could be in a relationship. I think there has to be a very significant shift in perspective. I think viewing people as an enemy is often a matter of perspective. So I'm gonna put on my creative writing hat for a second. I do creative writing. I've written some stories. I have a novel. And guess what a good story needs? A good villain. And I'll tell you what, villains are a lot of fun to write. That's another word for enemy, by the way. Do you know the secret to writing a good enemy? Is not treating them like one. You want to write a good villain, you got to understand why they're doing it. In the mind of most villains, they're doing what's right. And as a creative writer, you have to take on that perspective. You're like, okay, why would they do these things? And you have to kind of write that, if it's a good villain, if it's just like a flat-faced villain in a story, you know, and, you know, which are boring, then that's what they are. But a good villain has to have a good backstory. And they are doing it on purpose, and they think they're doing what's best. In fact, the people who killed Jesus thought they were doing God's will, right? If you really get into the, you know, the mindset, the backstory of the people who were doing, they were doing God's will. The Old Testament told them they should stone someone who's a wild man like Jesus or someone who speaks heresy like Jesus. They thought they were doing God's will. So if you really want to get into the, understand what it means to love our enemies, we do have to be willing to understand other people's perspective. And here's what I'm going to tell you. I'm not saying that everyone's right. Here's what I want you to hear. Ideas can be right or wrong. There are right ideas and there are wrong ideas. Actions can be good or evil. 
And sometimes they're a little bit in the middle, but actions can be right or wrong. Decisions, there are good decisions and bad decisions. Those can be somewhat binary. Sometimes it's a little nuanced, but it's possible for you. That was a wrong decision. This is a good decision. But here's the thing I need you to hear. People are always a little bit of both. And people might have bad ideas, and they may have made bad decisions. They may have bad actions, but them as humans... They're beloved children of God. Those are your enemies. Oh, loved by God. As much as God loves you. Equally so. Paul talks about spiritual warfare in in one of his letters. He says, we do not wage war against flesh and blood. I always took that to mean our fight isn't against people. Our fight isn't against people. There are systems There are behaviors, there are ideologies, there are perspectives that are very dangerous. But the people behind them are just people like you and me. Here's the goal of loving your enemies, and this is why this is so profound. Love stops violence, but hate perpetuates it. Hate escalates it. I had a chance to sit down with uh, some representatives from the city of Columbus this week talk about gun violence. They're developing a new group uh, violence intervention program, GVI, um, to address the very serious epidemic in the city of Columbus around too many people dying from violent crimes. I'm beginning to think more and more this is probably going to be the next thing that we invest in as a church. Uh, We're still in the early stages of conversation, but I want to meet with some of the leaders of this program, and we had a, a profound conversation And one of the people in the meeting said this, and and, and this is what I want you to hear, and I think it's so profound, but also it doesn't take much to understand why this is the way it is. They said, um, uh, someone who is shot today becomes a suspect tomorrow. This is the cycles of violence. What they're finding is that, you know, in places where violence is the way in which problems are solved, somebody gets hurt, somebody's killed, somebody's shot, and then there's retaliation. They go after the family or the gang or the group or the friend set, whatever it's you know called, and this just continues to happen in this cycle of violence. And, and what the city wants to do, and this is like, I'm like, this is what the church is doing. They're talking about what it means to love people. I was like, sign us up. Stepping into a family impacted by violence and providing them with... Uh, memorial services and cremation services and pastoral care, they don't have any, is one step in severing this cycle of violence. Providing job uh, assistance and transportation assistance to people who are violent offenders removes some of the underlying conditions that produce violence, and all of a sudden you can start breaking this cycle of violence. The Old Testament would say something like, an eye for an eye. You guys know what uh, Gandhi said about that? An eye for an eye only ends up making the whole world blind. To end this cycle of eye for an eye, it takes all of us to really embrace Jesus' command to bless our enemies. And I like that word the most, to bless our enemies. 
because it means to wish them well, to pray that good things would come to their life, which on a practical level would probably make them less your enemy, you know? Like if things were, the, the, whoever is out to get you or out to get a particular people group, if things were going better in their life, they probably have less room in their life for hate. So it's, it's very practical prayer to bless your enemies. The other thing I like about blessing your enemies, and if anyone's having a struggle with this message, I think this will give you some reassurance. We, we do a blessing every week when we gather for church. Does anyone know where it takes place in the service? At the end. Oftentimes, blessings are as people are leaving. So if you have an enemy where you're like, I don't think I can be with, around this person, bless them. You know what I'm saying? Bless them. I pray good things for you over there. <laughs> Nothing but blessings for you. This is a benediction, which is blessing. <sighs> At the heart of what it means to love our neighbors is to want what's best for them. And, and, and it's impossible with all of these things to be in a relationship with everyone. Jesus understood this better than anyone else. Um, Jesus invested predominantly in, in 12 individuals. And that's what, that's what it really means to love your neighbors, is to invest in a small group of people. But as we think about what it means to be a citizen of our, of our cities, of our neighborhoods, of our country, we need to embrace and understand things, understand things like diversity, inclusion, justice, and mercy, and certainly blessing and loving and praying for those who mean us harm. We're going to be moving over the next couple of weeks into my favorite season of the year. I'm a, I'm a Christmas fan. Now, I'll let you know, my wife is not. She's at another church preaching right now, so I can say that. Uh, not a fan. Uh, so if you're not, I get it. I know how to navigate that, too, but I'm a big fan. And uh, next week, we start Advent. And part of Advent, we're going to be spending some time. We actually have two guest speakers lined up. Next week, we have somebody, uh, Reverend Dr. Charles Ferguson, and uh, he is a preacher. Um, I, uh, preacher. Like it's, he's, uh, I will be disappointed if he doesn't come and preach. And if you don't know what I mean by that, you should come. It's going to be very beneficial, and he's very excited to come and share with us. Um, and then in a couple of weeks, we'll actually be welcoming somebody from Chris, which is the Community Refugee Immigration Services. And so our Christmas Eve offering will be going towards Chris. And they are the agency in the central Ohio that serves immigrants and refugees. And there is a very large influx of immigrants and refugees in the central Ohio area. So I would consider, you know, think about what you might be willing to give towards our Christmas Eve offering. You can do that online. But 100% of that's going to go. And I believe they're going to be using that predominantly for welcome kits or we might be furnishing somebody's apartment, that's that sort of thing. So that's 100% of Christmas Eve offering uh, will be going towards uh, immigrant and refugee uh, uh, things. So that's kind of where we're headed. Um, with that, I'm going to invite the, the band. You guys come up, and uh, let's, uh, let's uh, close in prayer. God, we give you thanks. Lord, we ask that you would uh, soften our hearts. Help us to be more like uh, your son, Jesus, who was willing to love 
those who meant him harm. God, we know that we are able to forgive because you first forgave us. We're able to love because you first loved us. We can't do it on our own power. Help us to do that in a way that is healthy, in a way that has good boundaries, in a way that um, respects the dignity of all people. We ask all this in your name. Amen.